0: This is realestateinvestingmastery.com. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to realestateinvestingmastery.com. So glad you're here. Alex could not make it, so we apologize about that. But you're stuck with me. But I think it's going to be a great episode. I'm real excited about our guest, Will Velasquez from Utah. But let me tell you something. you got to go to our website, realestateinvestingmastery.com. Realestateinvestingmastery.com. We have so much good stuff in there. If you've not been to our website, you can see all of our previous podcast episodes. Uh, We interview guys from all over the country that are making a killing and just crushing it in real estate right now. And we also have Q&A videos. Every week or two we release, Alex and I release a video with some answers to some common questions. So you got to check that out. We're starting to put transcripts of all of our previous podcasts on the website. And so hopefully by the time this episode is out, all of the transcripts will be up there. And we also have a free fast cash survival kit. On there we show you exactly how Alex and I run our businesses. We show you exactly how we wholesale our business, how we do our marketing. We show you how to wholesale properties that have equity and how to wholesale properties that don't have equity, which is my specialty and what we're gonna be talking about today using lease options and how to wholesale or flip lease options. Really exciting stuff in there. One of my favorite bonus videos in there is a video we did on marketing. You've heard me say over and over again you're not in the real estate business you are in the sales and marketing business. We have a video on there on how marketing works. So if you want to make, you know, $120,000 a year, that's $10,000 a month, right? That's not something you can control, but you can control how much marketing you're doing every day, every week, every month. And so we break it down, okay, if you want to make 120,000 a year, how many sellers do you need to be talking to every day? So if you find, you know, I need to talk to 5 sellers every day, to do these quick cash wholesale flips, okay? How many postcards do you need to send? How many emails and text messages and voice blasts or cold calls, whatever that you're doing on Craigslist or direct mail? How much do you need to send out every day? Because if it is all about marketing, how much marketing do you need to do to make your goals? All right. Now, you may be a buy and hold investor. You may be somebody who's not interested in wholesaling. You'd rather make the slow dime than a quick nickel. So, you know, you're still looking for deals, right? So if you want to find some nice multifamilies to buy and invest in, how many offers do you need to make every week on average to find those good deals? They are out there. So anyway, go check it out, realestateinvestingmastery.com. Put your name and email in there, and uh, you get these free video bonuses and the spreadsheets and the mind maps and everything we have in there. But in the meantime, I wanted to share with you some reviews that we had in iTunes, and I'm trying to pull it up for some reason. I can't, maybe at the end of the show. But we sure appreciate all of you guys that have been leaving reviews on iTunes for this podcast. It really helps, and we appreciate it. Well, here it is. I found it here. And you subscribe to our iTunes podcast on iTunes, it helps with the rankings, it helps us get up higher in the search results. And I'm trying to open up the reviews, but I can't. Anyway, I'll get to them at the end. So make sure you go to iTunes, leave us a review if you like this show and hopefully next time I'll be able to read them <laughs> before, before the introduction ends here. But anyway, I have a good friend with us on the line here. His name is Will Velasquez. He's from, is it Salt Lake City, Utah?
1: Just about 25, 30 minutes north of Salt Lake City uh, is where I live in Ogden, but I office at Layton, which is just in between. Okay. Salt Lake City is
0: a big area, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people live there.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, and it's growing. Yeah. Uh, there's still been a quite a bit of migration here from other states, still even California.
0: Well, I've only driven through there in passing, but I remember the mountains, beautiful city. Of course, I remember the lake. <laughs> very
1: The Great Salt Lake. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, very flat. It's amazing how flat it is and you hit the mountains and it's just gorgeous up there, but Yeah. um beautiful part of the country and so Will and I met On the phone probably about a year ago maybe it's been Mm -hmm. and I have this course most of you know about called wholesaling lease options and Will was interested in it and so we started talking and he has an amazing story and he's been now flipping lease options as a realtor for about a year now or maybe two Will what is it going
1: on two years now going
0: on two years okay I guess it has it been that long since we first talked
1: I think so. Time flies quick, Joe. We're getting old.
0: Wow. He's tearing it up. He's a realtor with Remax and doing really, really well. I interviewed him on a coaching call, a group coaching call a while ago. And uh, he got bombarded with phone calls from our students wanting to talk to him and ask him questions. And So I've been begging him to do this podcast interview with us because he's got a great story. And I love what he's doing because he's taken this niche of flipping lease options and has tailored it for using it as a realtor and doing really really well with it but he also does more traditional real estate too and he's been around the block he's been involved in real estate for a long time so thanks will for joining us on this call
1: my pleasure Joe
0: so talk about your history what you know your background what were you doing pre real estate days
1: okay well, pre-real estate days, that would be 1999. I was 21, 22 when I got into real estate. Prior to that, I was working at a pet food manufacturing plant here in Ogden while I was going to school at Weber State and trying to raise a very young family. Yeah. I actually started my family really young. By the age of 22, I had three little boys and a lovely wife. Yeah. And so, anyways... I was working at pet food manufacturing plant while going to Weber State University, and it just really started realizing that, you know, where I was working really wasn't going to be a long-term solution for me. Yeah. Especially after having a review one day, you know, at those types of jobs, you have a quarterly or a bi- yearly review. Per- performance yeah, yeah, performance reviews. Review. Oh, I did yeah. those. Yeah. Well, I got a performance review. I was working in the shipping and receiving department. I worked my way up. It started out there just slinging uh, bags of dog food. But I got a performance review, and at the end of that review, I was notified that I would be getting a 25-cent raise.
0: Wow. Yeah, what? and
1: at the time, I was making you know nine fifty, nine seventy-five an hour. And so, I don't know, it, just, it, it was so disheartening, you know, because I mean, I was really hoping for 50 cents, <laughs> which is what the funny <laughs> thing is. <laughs> And I don't know, I mean, and I think, I but, felt like some of it had to do with some of the politics that were going on over there. I, I feel like my supervisor maybe was upset at me about an incident that had happened prior or something, you know, so it was really discouraging and disheartening.
0: That's about a 3% raise.
1: <laughs> Is it?
0: <laughs> yeah, that keeps up with inflation.
1: <laughs> Proportionately, huh? Wow.
0: Okay. Well, right.
1: anyway, so it wasn't too long after that that I had gone and my wife and I and my boys had gone to go visit my in-laws. And as we got there, a real estate agent had pulled up and he was coming to pick them up to go uh, show them properties. Uh, he was a bilingual agent. My wife is uh, Spanish speaking and her parents are immigrants here from Mexico. And so the realtor was Spanish speaking. Uh-huh. And so, and he drove up in this fancy car, you know, the the whole illusion of fancy real estate agents. Yeah. But, you know, it appeals, especially to a 21, 22-year-old, like, hey, you know, I want to be able to just roll up and drive people around in fancy cars and wear nice suits. So this was the late 90s? This was, yeah, 99, actually. So I started asking him some questions, you know, about what it took to become a real estate agent and how it is that you go about getting your license and, you know, what it's like. And he it really inspired me because he said, you know, if you speak Spanish, you can do really well in this business right Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. And at that time, it was true. I mean, there were, it was an emerging market and there wasn't a lot of bilingual real estate agents, especially here in northern Utah. Yeah. Well, I took that to heart. You know, I went back to work the next day. And the more I thought about it, the more it really made sense. I had two weeks vacation coming up pretty soon. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and use that vacation time to go take the school because that agent had told me it, that I could actually do the accelerated course and get my license within 30 days. I could take the class in two weeks, like an accelerated two-week course, and I could take the school test, take the state test the next week, and then probably start or have my license in the mail you know, a week after that. So wow. I thought, okay. that's awesome. Okay. So I did. I took two weeks vacation and went down, drove down to Salt Lake every day for about eight, nine hours and did the classes, passed the tests, passed the state test, and got my real estate license. You know, and I just felt like I could make it work. So I had a little bit of money saved up from my 401k. I was gonna take a big hit because of the tax penalties that you get, but all said and done, I probably ended up with about five dollars or $6,000, which for me at the time was a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Just because, you know, I was only making $1,800 to $2,000 a month. So I basically had about two, three months reserved. And was your wife working too? I think she was working part time as a manager at a store at that time. So
0: you were supporting, and he had how many kids at the time?
1: I had three. Three, three kids. Boys.
0: Wow. how did yeah. you do
1: it? Well, wow. I mean, I was living paycheck to paycheck, obviously you know I, really the only savings i had was that 401k but you know we managed we lived in a little two bedroom apartment i mean i think my rent at the time was like 450 bucks all
0: right all right
1: anyway so shortly after getting my license i mean right after getting my license actually i put in my two weeks notice and decided <laughs> i was going to go work full time selling real estate great <laughs> so this gentleman that i had initially talked to invited to mentor me you know at least for the first few months until I got on my feet and and so I did that, you know, and it's funny because when I first got into real estate, you know, I was used to showing up to the warehouse at six o'clock in the morning, you know, and leaving at three or four in the afternoon, Uh you know, and so I got to the office, I remember my first day in real estate, I got to the office at like eight, feeling like it was late already, you know, and not a car in the driveway or (laughs) in the parking lot. Right. (laughs) And there still wasn't a car in the parking lot for another hour. And realtors didn't even show up until 10 or 11 o'clock you know, in the morning. And so it was really kind of a, a big shift for me. But I had a lot of motivation to make it work. And so you know, I figured I'm an early riser anyway. So I just thought you know, I'll just show up to the office every morning. I don't care if I'm the first one and I'll just you know, do what I need to do so I could start putting some deals together. So that's what I did. I mean, every day I'd just show up. I was used to you know, showing up every day yeah. you know, early, and, and so that's just what I did. I just kind of had a routine. I wasn't used to having a lot of freedom you know, with regards to a work schedule, and so I just kind of created a schedule for myself that I felt comfortable with. Good. Okay. Anyway, so from there, one of the first bits of advice that I got from the mentor that kind of took me under his wing was, you, know, you really need to start a sphere of influence a sphere of influence. Some people call it a center of influence. It's basically a list of people that you know, relatives, friends, family, acquaintances, and start putting those names and phone numbers together, start trying to put some addresses, basically create a database of people that you can start marketing to. And so that's what I did the first week is I put that list together. And it's funny because at the time, I think I originally came to him and said, okay, I've got a list of about 67 people. You know, and he laughed at me. He says, "Come on, really? Yeah. You know, sixty-seven people." And, anyways, he helped me to develop that list and helped me realize I really had at least a couple hundred people that, I, you know, that I knew well enough that I could, you know, carry a normal conversation with if I ran into them. And I just started marking that list after I put that database together. You know, again, it, I just kind of I say I call it forest gumping my way through it. I didn't really know. Much about what I was doing. I just knew that I needed to make some money and this is what I was told to do, so I did it. Okay. I also, a lot of the names and phone numbers on my list were people that I worked with at the dog food plant. All right. And a lot of them were Spanish speaking. And so I would, you know, just basically stay in constant contact with those folks and just let them know, hey, I've made a career change. This is what I'm doing now. If you know of anybody, Uh, That's thinking about buying or selling, you know, and I just had a routine where every morning I would just make sure that I contacted at least least 10 people. And then, you know, when someone had mentioned that they had a lead or if they were thinking about doing something, I had kind of a lead list that I would go off of. And, you know, I just kept working it. And I actually did really well my first year. Again, Mm -hmm. I continued that work ethic for, you know, the next 12 months. And so I started in real estate. That was in November of 99. And in... 2001 our local board our association of realtors has an annual like awards type banquet that they do and i had actually earned the rookie of the year award for my first year in real estate
0: wow how about that
1: i think i sold somewhere around 33 34 houses my first year are you kidding me Mm -mm. wow yeah
0: so you made i mean what was the average price do you remember what your commissions were that year
1: yeah that was what also made me kind of unique was that my average sales price was only like eighty thousand dollars at the time I would because I specialize in a niche market kind of in a niche area as well, I really kind of catered to first time homebuyers. and probably a majority i'd say probably seventy to seventy five percent of my clientele that first year were spanish speaking first time home buyers looking for you know more affordable housing and so yeah my average sales price was only like Seventy-five to eighty-five thousand, and so my average commission was maybe 2500 $2, dollars. I didn't make a ton of money my first year. I mean, again, because since I started with a brokerage and it was my first year, you know, you start at you know the, probably the lowest split. Well you, you were, well, you were
0: you were still do. getting fifty percent, so, weren't you?
1: Yeah, so I was getting fifty percent basically of all so the deals that I put together.
0: You made if you take thirty. If you don't mind, I'm just going to go through these. Oh, no, go ahead. I think it's important. If you, if you sold, I think you said thirty-three houses. Uh-huh. your average sale price is 80,000 so that's 2.6 million and if the average commission of your half was 3% of your broker's half so that's total gross commissions of about 79,000 and if you split that in half you made about $39,600 that first year about 40 grand yeah. In the first year.
1: Well, and I probably made a little more than that because my split progressively increased throughout oh, that year. Okay. I want to say I probably ended somewhere between forty-five to fifty thousand, which for me was fabulous, obviously, because I had, you know, come from a place where I was making twenty to twenty-five thousand yeah. a year,
0: and which is still probably more than seventy-five percent of all realtors make, even back then.
1: Right.
0: I think I read somewhere the average salary income of a real estate of a, of a realtor, an agent. Is like $14,000 a year. And that's looking at all of the full time and part time realtors. Wow. So those numbers are skewed because there are people that only do it part time, you know? Mm -hmm. But yeah, those numbers can be discouraging. That's cool, though. You Mm -hmm. took it so aggressively and you took it so seriously. I mean, you were very disciplined, which I am not an agent. I know a lot of agents, and I know (laughs) it's the rare trait.
1: Um, Well, I had a lot of motivation too, though, Joe. I mean, I had, you know, a wife and three really little kids that were depending on me to make it work, you know. And Mm. so for me, there really kind of wasn't an option. I didn't know how I was going to succeed. I just knew I was going to succeed.
0: That's a good place to be in. Yeah. That's awesome. So. All right. So then what happens?
1: Well, I continue to sell. I start looking to educate myself with regards to the industry that I chose, pursued some training courses, enrolled myself in coaching program. And I was enrolled in a coaching program. A lot of people may be familiar with it in the real estate industry anyway. It was the Mike Ferry organization. I started out the first six months, I think, in their entry-level program. It was a $297 program where it was a four-on-one coaching, Okay. where you were working four-on-one with, it wasn't directly with Mike Ferry, but with Someone who, usually an agent, who's still actively working, but usually producing at very high levels and have been coached directly by Mike and basically teaching their system. And so that's where I started was in that for about six months. And they also have another program, which it's called one-on-one coaching, where you work directly with the coach one-on-one under kind of a really high accountability type program.
0: I want to talk about that too, by the way, because accountability is so important, and I really liked, the, when you were sharing this with me before, I really liked what you said, how they held you guys accountable. What were some of the things that you had to do?
1: Yeah, basically, well, and let me just share. So the initial program that I did that was four-on-one was 297 a month, and the one-on-one coaching was one on or was $1,000 a month. So that was kind of a big jump for me, a big commitment to make. I mean, yeah. I wasn't even paying $1,000 a month for where I was paying in rent. I mean, by then, I had moved. Okay. You know, I bought a house in that. But it, yeah, it was basically high accountability. I mean, you had basically set assignments that you had every week before you made had the call with your coach. You had certain numbers that you had to reach. But, you know, so many contacts every day, so many appointments every week, so many listings that you took. And you kept track of those numbers and submitted them to your coach before the call. You'd go over those numbers with your coach. And then based on those numbers, it's, it's interesting. It really is how much information you can gather about where you may or may not need to improve based on you know, your numbers. Mm. I mean, obviously, if you're not making enough contacts, you're not going to set enough appointments. Or if you're making a lot of contacts and you're setting very few appointments, then that means that there's something with – presentation that you're making over the yeah, phone Excellent. You know, or if you're going on a lot of appointments and you're not getting a lot of listings, you know, maybe your listing presentation needs to be tightened up. And so it really helped the coach understand how to better help me by looking at those numbers.
0: I like that a lot. You're tracking your numbers, but it's a way to – and I say this all the time to my students. Look, if you want to know what's going wrong, look at how much marketing you're doing. Or yeah. I'll say sometimes to students, "Look, don't call me back until you talk to a hundred sellers." <laughs> okay, just go do it. Talk to a hundred sellers, and every time the ones that do it, who talk to a hundred sellers, will call me back by like number thirty or fifty and say, "I got a deal! I got a deal! Finally!" You know, so yeah. it's about the numbers, but it's having goals for yourself. I love that. I think that's just fantastic, and. We need to do that more often to ourselves and with our, you know, a lot of you guys are involved with uh, real estate investment clubs. Find somebody in that group that you can hold each other accountable. I think it's a fantastic idea and come up with these goals. All right. I want to call so many sellers every day. All right. I want to make so many offers on the MLS every day. I want to go view so many homes. So you were, go ahead. Yeah.
1: No, I was just going to say, I mean, when we talk about accountability, this structure was extremely high accountability. And I mean, you, you say you give you know, your coaching clients an assignment, you know, here, go talk to 100 sellers and then talk to me. Well, with these coaches, I had accountability to a higher level. I actually even wrote my coaches five $1,000 checks. And basically, I had, you know, certain requirements that I had to meet. You know, obviously, some you can't control, others you can. But the ones that I could control, that's what those checks were tied to. And so, Mm. say, for example, if I didn't deliver my numbers by a certain time on the certain day of the week, then Mm. that coach had permission to cash one of those $1,000 checks. Really? Yeah. (laughs) And I'll be honest, I lost $2,000 in that process. Yep.
0: You're kidding me.
1: Mm-mm.
0: What if the check bounced? You just kicked out of the coaching program?
1: I don't know. That's a good question. I, I didn't have one bounce. <laughs> and so I wished it would have bounced.
0: <laughs> Holy cow. But, okay. So, what were some of these goals, that, that these numbers that you had to follow? I mean, was it appointments, calling people? Talk a little, a little more specific about that.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, one of the obvious ones that is more in our control is, you know, the number of contacts that you make. So, for example, you know, I had a goal to make 25 contacts every single morning, every weekday.
0: Right.
1: So, uh, and then I would track those numbers. And so, definitely, that would be one that a check would be held to.
0: Now, what do you mean by contact? How did that work?
1: Well, this coaching program really is designed around being hands-on in your marketing, in Prospecting right. directly to an owner, so basically making cold calls to you know for sale by owners, expired listings, your sphere of influence, even just calling you know random numbers or maybe even just right. numbers around listings or good. properties that you just sold and that works doesn 't it? Oh yeah, absolutely good, good yeah it's the numbers i mean it 's not the funnest thing in the world to do right you know i mean it 's not like you get real excited every morning to pick up the phone and get rejected <laughs> right. You know, but, you know, And that's one of the things that the coaching and the experience, and I probably have to say more the experience, but I wouldn't have the experience if it wasn't for the coaching. Right. But that I attribute a lot of my sales ability to is actually doing it. Because you know, the more people that you talk to, the more experience you're going to gain. And the more experience you gain, the more confidence ultimately you're going to get. And the more confidence that you have, the more deals you're going to do because you'll be able to convert more. You'll be able to get more contracts.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. You were also broken up into little groups of other agents, weren't you?
1: Yeah, even in the one-on-one coaching, we normally were assigned an accountability partner where mm-hmm. you know, we would stay in contact, usually the accountability partner you would talk to once a day. And that was another thing that a check would be tied to is, were you in contact with your accountability partner you know, every day last week? Wow. So I had a, a checklist of like four or five things that I made sure that I did every single day. You know, just to make sure that I didn't lose a thousand dollar check. Wow. Um, Yeah. So, and and that was nice because you, I mean, in having an accountability partner who is enrolled in the same program and is being taught the same things and has very similar goals to that you have really helps to, you know, keep you motivated. It gives you someone to vent to if you're having some issues. It has someone, you know, someone that you can lean on. Or even better, what's nice about having an accountability partner is being there for them when they need you. Yeah. You know, because you, I mean, Joe, I'm sure you'll attest to this, is that when you teach someone, I mean, really, you learn more than the student almost, you know? Well, yeah,
0: and that's one of the reasons I love doing this. I'm learning new things all the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, anyways, continuing back to my story here, I was enrolled in the one-on-one coaching for about four and a half years three and a half, four and a half years. Let's say four years.
0: Okay. Four years. Uh,
1: Yeah. And those were the best years in my real estate. I mean, just again, I was held to a really high accountability level. I was inspired. I was motivated, you know, I mean, and, and it gets to a point where even though you don't like making, you know, the cold calls, you just develop a rhythm. It's like anything, you develop a habit. And then, you know, when you're not doing it for a day or two, it really makes you feel awkward. So, I really got into a rhythm and not only that but as part of that program I mean I was attending seminars that they would hold I'd usually go to three or four seminars that they'd hold all you know all around on the west side of the country more so for networking being I mean a lot of times I was going to the same you know productivity school and it, they were going over the same stuff but I would learn New things, obviously, because you'd listen to it differently, because maybe you're at a different place in your business. Yeah. But what I really loved about going to those events were the people that I would come into contact with and see over and over again, and you really establish some cool relationships with people that, you know, you have common interests with, and, you know, you're both in the same boat, you know, going in the same direction, so.
0: Five years, and you were paying a lot of money every month to be part of this for five years, but it paid off didn't it
1: yeah i mean obviously there i wouldn't have paid that if i didn't feel like there was some value that i was gaining in return Hmm. so around 2005 i had a really good friend of mine who you know and uh, as you remember 2005 2006 things started heating up in the real estate market yeah construction really started booming investments started booming even just regular residential sales, people wanting to upgrade. You know, interest rates were starting to decline. And let me even just make a, a note too. When I started in real estate, the end of '99, you know, and in 2000, interest rates were at eight, mm-hmm. eight and a quarter, and climbing. I think they got to about eight and a half, maybe the mid part of 2000. You know, I didn't know that was a high interest rate. You know, right. again, I'm 22 years old and really don't have much experience, but yeah I mean, so it's funny when you know people complain about rates going up to you know four and a half to five percent, <laughs> right
0: well, I remember people when it was at eight percent, people getting all excited because they were refinancing out of their seventeen eighteen nineteen percent home loan,
1: oh yeah, yeah, well, and when rates went down to like seven and a half, I mean, I thought the floodgates had opened, you know, wow, I was in a frantic trying to put deals together, you know because it was so awesome.
0: Uh, how many houses were you selling a year on average during this time, those five years that you were in that coaching program up to the real height of the market? What was your average year at that time?
1: I think my best year, I had closed 65, 70 deals.
0: Excellent. Still in that median, that price range 80000 or
1: It progressively got higher. By the end, I was averaging probably more like 150 to okay. 175,000 okay. dollars price range. I want to say my best year I in gross commissions I think I did like 170 170,000 or so. Okay,
0: good.
1: So anyways, market's starting to rev up and I had a really good close friend of mine who's also a realtor who was doing really well and had a background in construction and also had background in selling you know for builders construction properties and so he also got into investing and starting to build properties homes himself and one day we went to lunch and had this great idea that we should partner up that he would build the houses and I would sell them I would basically be the sales department he'd be he'd run the construction department okay and that evolved into a company all of its own and we started pursuing investments more aggressively construction and land acquisition entitlement and development
0: wow so were you partnering with him on these deals and buying
1: yeah, putting, putting uh, your
0: own money into it too
1: shortly after we basically just formed a company that we both owned 50 okay. 50 uh, partners
0: okay all right
1: and things were really great we were selling a lot of new construction we were you know turning a few investments you know, just even flip properties that would come across their desk that seemed like good deals. You know, and at that time, I mean, appreciation was really starting to help things move forward. In addition to, you know, we discovered how much money that you could make. Well, at least at that time, I think maybe the reality was a little skewed at that time. But, you know, how much money you could make, you know, finding a piece of ground, entitling it, and then either selling it as entitled ground. Titled meaning, you know, platting it out, subdividing You know, getting the plat approved by the city and selling either just the plat that's now approved or actually doing the improvements to the ground. Improvements being, you know, installing the sewer lines, Uh uh, getting the roads, the utilities, basically getting them ready so that someone could build a house on a lot. Okay. And so from 2000, the middle to the end of 2005 through the end of 2007, well, it was great all the way up until about the middle of 2007, and then the end of 2007, as a lot of the listeners probably know already, the market really came to a screeching halt. The credit markets completely froze up.
0: It was amazing how quickly it fell on a dime. I'm looking back at that thinking, "Holy cow, that happened so fast." I mean, I remember everybody thinking, "Oh, this is just a temporary thing. you know it'll just a little hiccup. <laughs>
1: Temporary thing. Here we are five years later, right? Oh,
0: yeah. Okay.
1: So go on. So, yeah, no. And so at that time, we were heavily vested. I mean, the market was booming and it was never going to end, right? Yeah. So we were reinvesting basically all of our profits back into our projects. And when the credit markets froze, I mean, and I can remember it very clearly, you know, it was like August 2007. Yeah. Everything just stopped. I mean we had deals under contract that were supposed to close. I mean big I'm talking big land deals. Yeah. You know, like one point two million dollar land deals that were going to net us, you know, two hundred, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars profit after everything was said and done that were under contract. We already had a buyer, but because the credit markets froze up, they couldn't obtain the financing anymore.
0: Right. right.
1: And so now we were stuck with properties that we had that were also financed. Mm-hmm Projects that were at a standstill, homes that we'd built that we needed to sell. We kind of know what direction I'm alluding to. Oh, yeah. here. I mean, yeah. basically all through the end of 2007 and most of 2008, actually and into 2009. I mean, it was really just a process of bleeding money and realizing the slow death that you're dying, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, basically, about, I want to say it was in mid-2008 that we decided to shut down the company. My business partner had filed bankruptcy, and I kind of held off for a while, but, I mean, it came to a point where I couldn't anymore. And so, in late 2009, that's how long I held on, I finally filed bankruptcy and was in a completely different place (laughs) than I imagined I would be. Yeah. Right?
0: How hard this must have been yeah, for you so, and your family. Anyways. This must have been extremely difficult and stressful for you at this time. Am I right?
1: Oh, unimaginable.
0: <laughs> I'm being I'm being facetious. But because there's a lot of people out there, Will, who have gone through what you just described and are still struggling with it and, and are uh, ashamed, are um, just feel like that how could this have happened to them and how could – they ever get out of that but i don't know i mean i just want to say to people look if this has ever happened to you don't feel like it's the end of the world don't be ashamed it happens to a lot of people it happens to the best of people there's a lot of good people i know that have gone through that have lost their house to foreclosure they've done short sales on their homes their investment properties they've gone through bankruptcy it's not the end of the world and and things will get better as i'm sure you're going to soon share right will yeah
1: and you know as you say that joe I, it's much easier to talk about it now yeah than it was then yeah you know and it's kind of sad actually i mean because you know here i was at a time when i needed people the most and i just i don't know if it was pride or I don't know, I just really felt alone during that time. I as I think back to it, like it, it really is kind of a dark time for me because feeling like I didn't have anybody to talk to, anybody to share with, anybody that could relate to me, and I really at that time felt like I was yearning to be able to communicate, at least share, you know what I was going through, but you know, and here, you know, I had a Facebook account, right? I had like 250 friends, none of which I felt comfortable enough to I mean, I'm sure I could have. And in fact, if the, some of those people heard me talking right now, they'd probably be upset that I didn't you know, reach out to them at that time. But it's much easier said than done. It's yeah. a hard thing to do at that time. And the advice that I would have for someone going through that kind of a dark time in their life would be really, we are obviously not our own best counsels. Mm-hmm. And so looking back, the advice I would give myself is, do what you don't want to do and actually get in communication yeah. with people. You know, actually get in communication and, and share with people, you know, what you're going through. I mean, there's people in your life that if they knew, they would, you know, on a dime drop whatever they were doing to be able to help you. And even if it's just to lend an ear. And, I mean, yeah. So, anyways, I'll just well, leave there, it at that.
0: But. There were times when I've done short sales on homes that I owned as, a, uh, as an investor. It was very difficult embarrassing I was shamed you know I did have friends that I reached out and talked to I'm part of a coaching program called life in air and, Error. and mm-hmm. I thought I had these bad problems and I thought I was a mess and then I started talking to other people who were way worse than <laughs> I was and I was like wow I, I all of a sudden I became grateful that I didn't have their problems and, and I meant <laughs> right. that in a good way but it's good to be able to find people that are like-minded that you can talk to maybe some people at your church or maybe some other investors in a local RIA group but there are a lot of people out there you might be surprised who have gone through similar things as you have and you thought you were the only one out there nobody could understand or relate to you but there's that's not true there's a lot of people out there who can and a lot of people made mistakes and you could say it wasn't your fault or but you know maybe it was maybe it wasn't that doesn't matter I keep on thinking of this song that and I just looked it up here on the internet. It's a song by You Are More. It's a Christian song, but one of the the chorus goes, "You are more than the choices that you've made. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are more than the problems you create. You've been remade." Again, let me read that. "You are more than the choices that you've made. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are more than the problems you create. You've been remade." It's a song by uh, 10th Avenue North, I think, is the band that sings that song. But That's cool. You know, I love those lyrics, and, and there's been times when it was at the darkest time for me three years ago or so. When thinking about that, and so just be encouraged. I, I don't want to get preachy and, and uh, yeah. you know, all emotional and all that, but be encouraged. I think, uh, Will, you are able to pull yourself out of that, and um, you're going to be a better man because of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But and you know it's funny because I'd had enough education and training that I knew that and you know part of it is understanding and accepting where you are, you know, instead of resisting it and I think that's where things really kind of started to make a difference for me yeah. is you know instead of resisting, you know, making the situation wrong, making the market wrong, making my business partner wrong, making myself wrong for you know how things turned out, acknowledging that it happened and it is what it is and there's nothing I can do about it, about the past, yeah. but I'm here, I'm still healthy, I still have my wife, I still have my kids, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> thank God you can't lose that in a, right. you know, in a bankruptcy. <laughs> so, I mean, as you start looking at being able to accept what's happened, and stand in who you are now, what's good in your life, and here's the best part, Joe what possibilities are available? Hmm. You know, I've done a lot of coaching, a lot of training, and even in the personal development realm, I've done some education training, some seminars, and courses. And one of those is one that I attribute a lot of my ability to be able to. Focus and see things for what they are rather than what you know people often make up to be. And in that education training, they teach you that you can actually invent possibilities, Hmm. right? I mean, it, it sounds really simple, yeah, but like you can actually decide on something and then invent that that's even possible and then go do it, you know, and prove that that's true. Yeah. So I may come back to that here in just a minute. but So I filed bankruptcy at the end of 2009, which, you know, that was a huge weight off of my shoulders to be able to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I felt like, okay, first of all, it was a mess going through that, you know, having to put everything that I needed to together. But I knew I had to do it. I finally got it done, filed, and and then it was discharged about three, four months later. Okay. But during that time, it was like a weight off my shoulders, right? But I still kind of felt lost in a sense. I mean, like, where do I go from here? What do I do? You know, so this is early 2010. I really decided that I was going to make something work. And, you know, as I'm starting to consider, do I... You know, do something else for, other than real estate. If I'm going to stay in real estate, where do I focus? Do I go back to, you know, cold calling for sale by owners and expires? Or should I just focus more on investing? Because I've flipped quite a few properties. In fact, I've probably flipped or at least been a partner of a flip in about 30 to 35 transactions since I've been in real estate. Okay. You know, so do I just focus on investing? You know, if I do focus on investing, what kind of investing? So I spent some time researching the market and looking at, okay, where do I want to focus my time and attention? Because I know that once I do decide, I'm going to give it everything that I've got.
0: You're talking about flipping properties. Do you mean as a realtor, you were buying them and then either fixing them up and selling them for a higher price? Is that what you're talking
1: about? Yeah, exactly. So as I'm doing my research and I'm looking at the market, trying to point my finger on what is the best place to give all of my time and attention, something kept Coming up, and that is that you know, based on our current market, one of the things that I learned from one of my coaches was, you know, look at what everyone else is doing and do the opposite. Yeah, and so what I was seeing everyone in my industry do is they're all going after the foreclosures, they're all trying to get these REO accounts so that they can be an REO agent, they're all going after the short sales. Or they're all going after the sellers and buyers who buyers who can qualify right now, or sellers who have equity to sell. Yeah, so I said, well, what if I did the opposite? What if I went after all of the buyers that can't buy and all of the sellers that hmm. can't sell?
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, because that's a much bigger pool. I oh, felt yeah. like oh, right.
0: Yeah.
1: I love it. Once I came up with that idea, I thought, okay, let me start looking into that. And then I started researching, seeing what, who out there was doing that. And it's funny because I really didn't come across any agents that were doing that. Everything that I saw with regards to lease options was investors. You know, obviously I came across Wendy Patton and her stuff. She, I mean, you can't not come across her if you're searching lease options.
0: By the way, I'm interviewing her next week.
1: Oh, are you? That's awesome. I look forward to listening to that. I came across you. I think I also came across Keith and Shannon. French, French yes. right? Uh-huh. And what was cool about coming across your guys' information was seeing the possibility of being able to make, because my experience in, in lease options, and I think most agents who've only done one or two or zero. Hey,
0: everybody, this is Joe. We actually did lose Will on the call there, so we called him back, and we actually talked for another hour or so. We are going to break this up into two episodes, so be sure to tune in next week to hear the rest of our interview with Will. It gets even better. So, But in the meantime, we're going to end this podcast right here. Go check us out at realestateinvestingmastery.com, realestateinvestingmastery.com. Check out our transcripts. Check out the free bonuses that we have on there, Fast Cash Survival Kit. You will get a lot out of it. And make sure you join our email list so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. So until next time, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.